Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Tonight, the latest on the Israel-Hamas war. The deadly blast at a hospital in Gaza, killing hundreds of people. Then the race for the gavel, now entering its third week, as Jim Jordan fails to win the speaker on the first ballot. And the rampant spread of misinformation online about the Israel-Hamas war. We're going to separate fact from fiction with two experts as the 11th hour gets underway on this Tuesday night. Good evening once again. I'm Stephanie Rule, live from MSNBC headquarters in New York City. President Biden is on his way to Israel as we speak as the crisis in the Middle East appears to reach a tipping point. Biden's mission to show support for Israel in its war with Hamas and to press for aid to Gaza now in the midst of a humanitarian crisis. But just hours ahead of Biden leaving D.C., a powerful explosion rocked a hospital in Gaza, killing hundreds of people. Officials in Gaza and in Israel have blamed one another for the blast. That has inflamed already high tensions across the region. NBC's Richard Engel has more. Palestinians call it a massacre and say an Israeli airstrike exploded at the Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza City, a direct hit where thousands of Palestinians were taking shelter from Israeli retaliatory strikes on Gaza. Gaza's health ministry, which is run by Hamas, says hundreds are dead. Bodies seen lying on the grass outside. The wounded were rushed to another hospital in Gaza City. Young children are among the victims. There was an almighty missile shriek and then a big thud. And the full ceiling in the OR fell on top of us. There are lots of children, very young children, whose bodies... We're laying on the floor. This could be a tipping point, triggering rage across the Arab world, just as the region is on the brink of a wider war. Israel quickly denied responsibility and said the explosion was caused by a Palestinian rocket that misfired, launched not by Hamas, but another Palestinian militant group in Gaza. Many Palestinians don't believe that. Protests erupted in the West Bank, Jordan's king calling it a heinous war crime. And President Biden's impending visit is now in jeopardy. The leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, a moderate, left Jordan, refusing to join President Biden for a peace summit in Amman with other Arab leaders. And now that summit has been canceled. Inside Gaza, Hamas is under pressure. On Monday, the top spokesman for the group's military wing claimed the group is willing to release an unspecified number of foreigners it took hostage during its attack in southern Israel. Today, a senior Hamas official told me that offer has expanded. We are ready to release uh, all the civilians, including the foreigners. 
all of the civilians, including the Israeli civilians? Yes, including the Israeli. I'm sorry. You th- are you? Can I just clarify this? You say you're willing to release all of the civilians, including the Israeli nationals, yes, if there is a stopping, yes, including the Israeli civilians and all the foreigners. And what are you asking for in order to do that? Do you want the airstrikes to stop? Is that the condition? Stop the aggression. How can we technically, logistically, it is impossible to do it. So that our, our viewers might hear that and say that this offer doesn't mean anything. That if you're not willing to carry it out, then it doesn't mean anything. How? Well, if you stop the aggression, it can be implemented over the next hour. Let's get right to my colleague, Ellison Barber, who is at the Israel-Gaza border. It is just after 6 a.m. Ellison, thank you so much for being here. Talk to us about what you've seen overnight and the situation inside Gaza right now. Stephanie, you might be able to hear a little bit of what sounds like a drone circling overhead throughout the night. We have periodically heard the sound of military aircrafts, military helicopters and drones circling over this area. When we look back to the area behind me, which is part of Gaza, you can see uh, sometimes when something goes off inside of Gaza, the glow of orange from where we are standing. We have not heard in the overnight hours any sort of artillery bombardment from the Israeli side into Gaza. We haven't heard anything rockets-wise coming from this section of the border out of Gaza into Israel last night. Uh, In the overnight hours, we heard quite a bit of artillery bombardment coming from the Israeli side into Gaza. That hasn't been the case tonight. Most of the discussions, the talks from the Israeli military to all of the different parties inside of Gaza has been focused on what happened at that hospital in Gaza City. There's a lot of finger pointing going on right now, and NBC News has not been able to independently verify who is responsible for the explosion at the hospital. But we do know hundreds of civilians have been killed. We have seen videos that have been given to our teams from people inside of Gaza. We have heard from people who were there witnessing it, and it is an absolutely horrific situation. One of the doctors who is working at another hospital in Gaza City where they are treating a lot of the patients who have been sent over from the Al-Ahali hospital where that explosion took place, they have described to us how they were already at their brink. They were already past their capabilities. They don't have enough resources there. They said they were already overcrowded, full of patients, and now they are treating so many people who were injured in this bombing. There are so many bodies, they said. They said they cannot keep up with the situation that has happened there. And one of the doctors working at that other hospital told us they feel right now like nowhere in Gaza is safe, that no hospital is safe because of what has happened tonight. There was a press conference uh, earlier this morning, later, earlier tonight, your time, and a spokesperson for Israel's defense forces said that they are planning to brief President Biden on the evidence they say they have in terms of who carried out the attack on this hospital. Again, they are claiming it wasn't them. They are saying that it was Islamic Jihad. They say they have video footage they plan to show the president as well as audio recordings. They say intelligence operations have collected that they claim uh, show and you can hear in them Islamic Jihad saying something that 
indicates they were behind this or had something to do with this. Israel is claiming that a rocket uh, or rockets headed towards Israel misfired and then struck this hospital. Hamas, Gaza's Ministry of Health, Islamic Jihad, they are strongly pushing back on this, saying, look at the video, this explosion, the way that the bomb fell. This had to be an aerial bombardment like the attacks we've seen Israel coming out, essentially saying we don't have these sorts of weapons or capability. It wasn't us. We do not know. NBC News does not know who is responsible for this, but we know a lot of civilians' lives have been lost, and we know that IDF plans to brief President Biden on this when he gets to Israel. Stephanie? Maybe the most important point. We might not know who caused it, Ellison, but we certainly know who is suffering. Ellison, thank you so much for being here tonight. Please stay safe where you are. I want to bring in our leadoff panel tonight. Amna Nawaz joins us, co-anchor of PBS NewsHour and an MSNBC contributor. Ben Rhodes is here, former deputy national security advisor for President Obama, Jeremy Bash, former chief of staff at the CIA and the Pentagon. Amna, I want to turn to you first. President Biden issued a statement saying he is outraged and saddened by the hospital explosion. What is he heading into? I mean, he was planning this trip. We knew about it yesterday before this horrific explosion. The trip was already high stakes, Stephanie. I mean, one of the president's main goals in making this trip was not only to show solidarity, as he has continuously done over the past 10 days with Israel, to say that the U.S. will stand by them in this war against Hamas, but also to try to contain this conflict from expanding beyond the borders it's already in broadly into the region. That was the reason for this Jordan summit, where it was also going to be meeting with the leader of the Palestinian Authority and the leader of Egypt, uh, that King Abdullah of Jordan was going to be hosting. That summit is now canceled. So those meetings, those conversations will not happen on this trip. But another part of this meeting is also to try to leverage some of that open, candid relationship. We've heard White House officials say that President Biden has with Prime Minister Netanyahu to say, allow more humanitarian aid in. The people of Gaza, the innocent civilians who are caught in this crossfire need food, they need water, they need access to electricity, maybe they need an access to a humanitarian corridor to actually evacuate some of the areas being hardest hit, even though I'll tell you, everyone we talk to inside Gaza says there is nowhere that is safe right now. And also to try to press the Israelis to do more to minimize civilian casualties. We know in that private conversation President Biden had with Mr. Netanyahu last week, that was part of the message that's been delivered. And since then, thousands of Palestinians have been killed, including hundreds and hundreds of children. And so even in this fog of war, as we are trying responsibly as journalists to figure out what we can factually say about who is behind this latest atrocious attack on this hospital. In many ways, I'm, I'm sad to say this, we, we may not know and it may not matter because people who express pro-Palestinian sentiment who have been watching the largely indiscriminate bombing by Israeli forces across Gaza who've seen innocent civilians already killed likely won't believe any evidence that comes from Israeli officials or from the U.S. or from journalists right now because they've already seen so many people killed, because they've already seen hospital facilities and ambulances and UN-run shelters in schools that have been hit. So it is our job, I will say, to get to the bottom of this, to report what we know based on the facts. But in terms of the impact on the ground, uh, this may be a tipping point. 
Ben, when President Biden announced his trip to Israel, Anthony Blinken had been to several countries in the region. He had just finished a seven-hour session with Netanyahu. This time last night, it felt like there was some progress. Has the hospital explosion changed all that? Yeah, I mean, I think what it's done is it's made an already risky trip uh, that much riskier. And look, I think if you listened to Tony Blinken yesterday, it was clear that he had just been in all these Arab countries. And it was clear that he was trying to message a couple of things. One was this issue around getting humanitarian access and humanitarian supplies into the people of Gaza. Um, the other, though, I think was pretty clearly uh, messages from Arab leaders that they were concerned about what public opinion was doing in their own countries, that there is a risk of a kind of explosion, not just uh, a regional escalation with Hezbollah to the north or on the West Bank from Palestinians there who've been in back and forth violence with the Israeli settlers, but also in Arab capitals and also risks potentially to U.S. embassies. Um, and I think that was a bit of the backdrop for the messaging out of the White House that really sought to emphasize that a big part of this trip is trying to secure that humanitarian opening, that humanitarian access. I think this horrific event at the hospital, which I just want to echo, we don't we don't know what happened, but we do know what the reaction is going to be across the Arab world uh, and around the world. It's further horror uh, at an even more dire humanitarian circumstance. Um, I, I think that makes it that much more tricky for the White House. And I think it makes it that much more important that they're able to leave that meeting showing something really tangible and substantial on the humanitarian front, uh, not something symbolic, but something that can significantly alleviate some of this suffering that we're seeing, whether it's you know credible safe zones, whether it's a robust commitment uh, to get humanitarian supplies in through that uh, southern border. And frankly, honestly, I think what you're hearing from the White House, too, is that they're going to be wanting to ask some hard questions about this ground invasion um, and just, uh, you know, how that's going to go forward, what that's going to look like, how expansive that's going to be. If this is what Gaza looks like now, uh, imagine what it could look like if 100,000 Israeli soldiers go. And imagine what the risks are to Israelis, including those Israeli soldiers. So I think this is a really high stakes meeting. It's almost it's hard to think of uh, a similar meeting that the president of the United States has had in such a fluid situation and uh, in, in, in what is really an active war zone. Jeremy, how do you think this explosion changes things? Yeah, well, first, I give President Biden tremendous credit for boldly going and standing by an ally. We're just obviously 10 days after the worst atrocity against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And he's been so resolute, so morally clear. And for him to go to Tel Aviv, go to Jerusalem, go to the war cabinet and sit down with Israeli leaders and show solidarity, I think is an incredibly important message. Now, to Ben's point, the reaction on the Arab street is a critical factor that's playing out at this hour. But why was there this reaction on the Arab street? It's because for some reason, the news media ran out there and took the word lock, stock and barrel of a Hamas ministry spokesperson. And of course, it was an Israeli airstrike before there was any evidence. Now, I agree at this hour, we don't know. The IDF has put out a radar track showing that the missile from Islamic Jihad flew right over the hospital. They also say that there's a SIGIN intercept of Islamic Jihad fighters talking about firing this rocket. So we don't have the evidence. And I take the point earlier, we may never know. But the fact that it was reported breathlessly, word for word from Hamas, which obviously has no credibility. I mean, they told your they told Richard Engel they'd release the hostages if there was no 
airstrikes within one hour. Your reporter just gave a set of piece in which she said there's been no airstrikes here for three hours. So where are the hostages? They're nowhere to be found. So I don't think we can credit Hamas. I think this is a dicey situation. I credit the president for going. Uh, and hopefully they'll be calm. Hopefully there'll be humanitarian relief inside the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Um, and the U.S. can kind of transmit a, a message of strength and uh, resolute support for Israel at this time. And let's stay on this hostage crisis, because to Jeremy's point, Hamas is not being truth about the conditions in which they will release hostages. But one of the president's main missions, he's hoping to make some headway on this issue. What is he up against? Well, I mean, look, he's up against I, I don't even know, you know, the Hamas uh, official. Uh, it's you know, it's important, obviously, to, to hear what they're saying. But I don't even know if that guy uh, has any idea where all the hostages are. Um, you know, we have to bear in mind um, this is a chaotic situation uh, in which there's you know different command and control inside of Hamas. Hostages could be scattered across Gaza. Some of them could be in tunnels. Some of them could be in places that are intermingled with civilians. Um, I think that what is clear is that, you know, in Secretary Blinken's trip, he was in Qatar, where there is a Hamas representation. There is a Hamas office that has been one of the destinations for negotiating things like prisoner releases or exchanges. Same thing in Egypt, uh, another venue for those kinds of discussions. And look, I think that uh, 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 unless there is a comprehensive ceasefire and some negotiation, the kind of full scale release of hostages is something that I just couldn't uh, foresee. But I think the U.S. may be pressing hard for more limited releases, uh, women, children, um, you know, Hamas. You know, you obviously want to see everybody released, but Hamas may want to release some of the Americans, for instance. Um, and so I do think just trying to get anybody out that you can uh, is is really important. Uh, that's, you know, further to the point of this bombardment and the potential ground invasion. It, it gets harder, actually, obviously, the more the, there are military operations in Gaza um, to to negotiate for hostage releases if they're intermingled with that kind of street to street urban warfare and fighting. Um, so I think the administration wants to get whoever they can out diplomatically before there's a potential ground invasion when all this gets much, much more difficult. Earlier today, my colleague Lester Holt spoke to the father of a 23 year old American man who is currently being held hostage. I want to share just a bit of it. How do you think he is doing? Hirsch is not the strongest guy physically. But he has a very tough, resilient mental makeup. And I keep pulling strength from that. I just keep saying to myself throughout the day, channeling messages to him, Me don't give up. I am so amazed by how strong these family members are. Amna, you were just in Israel. What did people say about how the government is handling the hostage crisis? You know, it's so interesting to hear that fathers speak there because I heard this message over and over again from folks on the ground, including a number of families I spoke to uh, whose loved ones had been taken hostage. And one woman in particular, I'll never forget, whose father was taken from the Niraz Kibbutz. He's 81 years old, dependent on medication for his health, and they have no idea if he's even still alive. But the resilience and the strength shown by these families when they are doing the unimaginable, is it just leaves you in awe. What's really interesting on the ground right now in Israel, though, when it gets to just the domestic political situation and support for this war, Stephanie, is that you have to remember the Netanyahu government was very divisive leading up to that 
atrocious attack by Hamas. Um, and so a lot of folks will say right now, we don't support this government necessarily. We don't support this prime minister, but we support them doing whatever they need to do to keep us safe. I spoke with one man who's actually a veteran of a combat unit in the IDF who has gone out and protested the government. He's protested Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories, but he has sent his son off to war when he was called up with his combat unit because he knows that this is not sustainable, that Israelis living under the threat of Hamas, which is an organization that has avowed to end the state of Israel, that it isn't sustainable anymore. So it's a different moment for Israelis as well. Amna Nawaz, Ben Rhodes, Jeremy Bash, I wish we had more time. I could talk to the three of you all night. Thank you so much for starting us off this evening. I appreciate it. When we come back, we have got to talk politics. Two weeks later, and still, there is no Speaker of the House as Jim Jordan officially fails the first ballot. David Jolly and Matthew Dowd are here on the chaos in the House. And to remind us about Jim Jordan's record in Congress and maybe answer, why would he even be put up for Speaker? And later, a wave of online misinformation about the Israel-Hamas war. We'll talk to Jake Ward about the dangers of lies that are shaping people's opinion about the conflict. The 11th hour just getting underway on a very important Tuesday. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The House of Representatives has been without a speaker for two weeks, and no Republican has been able to get the votes necessary to win a majority. The current frontrunner and election denier, Jim Jordan, is a divisive figure, even within his own party, and a constant defender of Donald Trump, no matter what. Here is just a little reminder of who this man is and what he has said on the record. Americans instinctively know there was something wrong with this election. Somehow, the guy who never left his house wins the election. We asked for an investigation. We should do our duty. We should object to and, 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 and vote for this objection to the Arizona electors. Did you speak with President Trump on January 6th? 
Yeah, I mean, I speak. I, I spoke with the president last week. I speak with the president all the time. I spoke with him on January 6th. We control the power of the purse. And that's we're going to have to look at the appropriations process and limit funds going to some of these agencies. Yeah. 2016, they spied on his campaign. 2018, yeah. the Mueller investigation. 2020, they suppressed the Hunter Biden story. 2022, they raid his home 91 days before an election. Wow. And now they indict the former president and the top candidate yeah. who's leading in every poll. When he, he was president, he declassified the material. He's but been, he says point blank. He says that. point blank on tape as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't. How many ballots are you willing to go through? So until we get a speaker, we got we to gotta have a speaker and it can't be some deal with the Democrats. I, I mean, American people don't want that. After failing to secure the votes this afternoon, Jordan says the next speaker vote will go down tomorrow at 11 a.m. Back with me tonight to discuss former Republican Congressman David Jolly and MSNBC senior political analyst Matthew Dowd. He is also a former George W. Bush strategist and founder of Country Over Party. Mr. Jolly, to you first. You have the honor of knowing Jim Jordan personally. You work together. What do we need to know about this man? He's an insurrectionist, conspiracy theorist whose bid for the speakership is as dead as Ron DeSantis's bid for the presidency. Uh, this is not going to happen tomorrow. I, now, we are in the, in the world of all bets are off, but it looks like Jim Jordan is done tonight, and it should be. And so the question then becomes, what next? Um, I still am in the camp that there are no crossover votes. There are no Republicans that will vote for a Democratic speaker, no Democrats that will vote for a Republican speaker. And so then the question becomes, do you move to an interim or a caretaker speaker? Do you move to an interim Patrick McHenry and just give him temporary expanded authorities as speaker to pass a little bit of legislation around Israel, Ukraine and the budget? That seems like common sense, but even that gets mired in the fact that Republicans are out of step with where the nation is on policy, and therefore they don't want to lose the Democrats even in that environment. Republicans today are just as bad off as they were two weeks ago. Let's actually talk about policy, Matthew, and maybe I'm naive, but maybe I'm speaking for those everyday Americans that like their elected officials to actually get something done. In Jim Jordan's 15 years in Congress, not a single one of his bills has been signed into law. Why would this man be chosen for the most important role in Congress? Well, you know, if you think about it, he's actually today's perfect representation of the GOP. He hasn't accomplished anything in office. He's been he's been credibly accused of covering up a sex scandal. And he's been in, in, instrumental as part of an insurrection. So he's almost the perfect GOP candidate for this. This, to me, putting Jim Jordan in charge of the speakership, it would be like a football team, an NFL team saying, we're going to have a starting quarterback who's never completed a pass and who doesn't believe in the rules of the game. That's who we're going to make our starting quarterback in this case. It, it makes no sense except in today's GOP. But in today's GOP, he seems to be the perfect character that fits with all those attributes. Well, let's talk about a woman who was the opposite of a perfect character for today's GOP, Liz Cheney. And I want to share what she said about Jordan's speaker bid. Jim Jordan knew more about what Donald Trump had planned for January 6th than any other member of the House of Representatives. And if the Republicans decide that Jim Jordan should be the Speaker of the House, there would no longer be any possible way to argue 
that a group of elected Republicans could be counted on to defend the Constitution. David, Jim Jordan is an election denier. He does not accept Joe Biden as our rightful, lawful president. We have to keep reminding our audience just how much this man was involved in January 6th. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, Stephanie, this is the very serious part of of Jim Jordan being on the cusp of winning. First of all, if Donald, if Jim Jordan were to become speaker, it represents Donald Trump's complete takeover of the House of Representatives. But I also believe this. It becomes a vehicle to steal the 2024 election. That is that is true. We know that based on Jim Jordan's behavior going into the 2020 election, based on January 6th, based on his his efforts to overturn it and his lack of cooperation with the J6 committee. If Jim Jordan becomes speaker, the House will be used to try to steal the 2024 election. I believe that. But to defeat Jim Jordan, I think it will be at the hands of some real policy wonks in the Republican Party. As Matt said perfectly, he is the culmination of the last 20 years of Republicans, which have moved us from less government to no government to government is the enemy. And who will stop Jim Jordan tomorrow? I think it's actually the appropriators in the Congress, the Republican appropriators who believe they achieve conservative results by keeping the government open. Jim Jordan's a shutdown conservative. Appropriators want to govern. I think Jim Jordan is going to come up short on the House floor. He will not have the votes because governing conservatives will beat out the shutdown conservatives. Matthew, I want you to do some moderates math for us. What is a worse deal for moderate Republicans to hold their nose and work with Jim Jordan or cover their ears and work with Democrats? I mean, if you were just looking at this for a pure political calculation of those 18 members who are in Biden districts, if you just purely did a political calculation for them to win their own districts in that case, it would be much better for them to pair up with Democrats and sort themselves through this than pair up with Jim Jordan, who on almost every single issue is out of step with with moderate voters, which will have to elect those Republicans in those districts. So if they were just looking at it, crass politics, which I actually think, unfortunately, most Republicans have given up on, actually, they don't no longer listen to politics and they no longer care about what voters think. They just care about what one person thinks down in Mar-a-Lago. And that's what gets in, the, in this difficulty. I still hope I still lay out some hope that there's enough Republicans, even if it's a small number, will, that will do enough to figure out this and not reward Jim Jordan, who has no business. He has no business being in Congress. But li- most of all, he has no bi- business leading a House that he has, has had shown no interest in leading in his 15, 16 years there. He's also absolutely abysmal at fundraising which is a pretty important thing when you've got that gig. David Jolly, Matthew Dowd, thank you both for being here tonight. I appreciate it. When we come back, as the Israel-Hamas war escalates, so do hateful threats. Our next guest shares her international fight against anti-Semitism, and the 11th hour continues. Hamas's deadly terrorist attack in Israel could inspire more violence against Jews and Muslims, according to the FBI. The agency is tracking a sharp rise in threats against both groups in the U.S., and they are working with faith leaders to talk about potential threats against their communities. 
With me now to discuss Michal Kolterwunsch, Israel's special envoy for combating anti-Semitism. She is also a former member of the Israeli Knesset. Michal, you live in Israel. You left behind three adult children on the front lines. You spent the last week burying friends, friends' children. But you came here to talk about this rise in anti-Semitism because it's that much of a crisis. Tell us what you're seeing. What do we need to understand? So first of all, we need to understand that Israel is under complete attack. You spoke about my own three children, but there is not an individual that hasn't been deployed, whether on the front lines fighting or in home front command fighting in hospitals, in schools, in morgues. We haven't even completed burying all of those that were murdered and butchered and raped and burned alive. We're not done that part yet. And rockets keep coming, targeting Israeli civilians from densely populated areas in Gaza, a double war crime. The urgency to understand that the same genocidal anti-Semitic hate that fueled these massacres, these savage attacks on civilization, actually are reflected devastatingly in the responses to them around the world, in protests, on campuses, on social media that deny or explain or legitimate or scream, we are Hamas. Imagine screaming, we are ISIS post 9-11. I can't. And that's what I can't get my head around. I can fully understand the pure black and white evil of ISIS, of Hamas, the attacks on the most innocent people a week ago. How can we make sense of the responses we're getting around the world and people who are saying, ah, Hamas might have an argument? So at the end of the day, the reason that I'm here as Israel's special envoy for combating anti-Semitism and Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and indigenous people returned after millennia of exile and persecution to our ancestral homeland is that attacks on Jews all over the world resulting from these attacks, as you just said, happened days after. And in many ways, it aligns seemingly regular individuals, civilized individuals who are meant to identify with foundational principles of life and liberty with a genocidal terror organization. And the only explanation for that, Stephanie, is, is anti-Semitism. It is the single only explanation, a hatred that has lasted for thousands of years by mutating, mutating over and over again. You know, post-COVID, people can understand that when you have a strain of a virus, and it mutates. And what you inoculate against is the first strain of the virus, let's say Holocaust denial, but we all sort of agree that is anti-Semitism. It's insufficient because the new strain has developed. This new strain of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism that targets the nation state of the Jewish people, that has enabled the pivot from targeting the individual Jew and barring him or her from an equal place in society, to targeting the Jewish nation state and barring it from an equal place in the family of nations by dehumanizing, by delegitimizing, and by applying double standards to it. And I have to tell you, even tonight, with the awful sights from the hospital, the only single entity, as we look at these tragedies unfold, that can be blamed, that must be held to account, that must be blamed for everything that has happened, holding humans as shields and weapons and pawns in their war on I would say civilization, not just on Jews or the Jewish nation state, 
is Hamas, a genocidal terror organization, a proxy of a genocidal regime in Iran, alongside other proxies like those who it is basically confirmed by the IDF, shot the rocket that mislaunched or whatever it did in order to, at the end of the day, actually injure hundreds more civilians in Gaza. But they, too, are held hostage by the same genocidal terror organization. We can't confirm yet the origin of what caused this explosion. But what we know is every person in that hospital is a victim. They're a victim of hate. And you put out a a statement today addressing the rise in hate, not just as it relates to Jews, but the rise in hate across the world. What's your message? The most important thing that I think we have to understand is that this is not, as I said, just an attack on Israel. This barbaric, savage, terror, genocidal terror attack on the state of Israel, driven by that anti-Semitism, is an attack on our shared humanity. And we have to be very careful with the false moral equivalency that places democratic countries that not only have the right to protect their civilians, but must protect their civilians from that genocidal hate and comparing them to that genocidal terror organization that uses human beings and actually celebrates when human beings are injured or killed, uh, denying them access to humanitarian corridors that we create, denying or stealing humanitarian aid, as we found out with evidence yesterday, uh, uh, humanitarian aid that's delivered to Gaza. And the list goes on and on, hiding behind or below hospitals and mosques so that, and I have to be so honest, Stephanie, Regardless of what will happen in the incoming, oncoming days, more civilians will be injured because Hamas hides below the civilians and uses them as weapons. And the goal, as far as I'm concerned, in order to be able to hold Hamas to account is not they don't care what we say. But we care what we say. The countries that can pressure, for example, Egypt to take in those that can be um, uh, evacuated from neighborhoods, just as Israelis, by the way, over 500,000 Israelis have been evacuated from their homes. There is a border of Gaza with Egypt. They can be evacuated. There are responses to humanitarian aid that we can and must launch, pressuring Israel or holding it to account as if it is targeting those civilians is going to actually be a great disservice. In the face of darkness, we have the opportunity to be the light. Thank you for being here. When we come back, misinformation has run rampant online since this war began. We're going to get into the real-world consequences of it all when the 11th hour continues. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Ecucinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Social media has been flooded with fake videos and false information since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. These platforms have been a crucial tool, but they've got real-world consequences during a war. A lot of the content that we're seeing right now includes terrorist propaganda, includes extraordinarily graphic, violent content, uh, mis- and disinformation, and hate speech. The average social media user is having an increasingly difficult time ascertaining uh, what's real or fake. Um, There are verified badges that could be now purchased on multiple social media platforms that give a veneer of authenticity. It doesn't just erode public trust. This issue can actually have a real-world impact on public safety. With me tonight, NBC News tech correspondent, my friend Jake Ward, and Ahia Schatz, CEO at Fake Reporter, which focuses on fighting disinformation, hate speech, and other malicious online activities in Israel. Ahia, walk us through the kind of disinformation you have been seeing online in the last nine days, because it's crucially important for our audience to understand this. Yeah, so we need to understand that when the war started, there was a void of information created from the confusion uh, the fast attack, and people found themselves in fear and looking for answers. Into this void came all kind of interest groups trying to shape narrative to the public, both from within the country and from without the country. Uh, we've seen right away videos circulating that are not re- not related to the area, trying to promote narratives. We've seen Iranian campaigns to um, glorify the war and their own acts as, for example, uh, saying that a huge cyber attack was the cause or by them was the cause of the, the, the success of this uh, uh, horrible attack. Um, and we've seen also internal internal um, group of interests trying to push narratives that will have their leaders, for example, that it wasn't a failure of the leadership or the army. It was uh, treason from within. Um, starting to claim all kinds of things like it was the left or the protesters against Netanyahu. And last, we've seen conspirators of COVID coming and uh, saying it's a new world order and really taking the moment to shape uh, shape their kind of perception and lies um, uh, upon the public uh, opinion. Jake, same question to you. Talk to us about the disinformation that's out there and how dangerous it is, especially now, because there is this void or, or vacuum of information from governments, right? Think about all the people who have been desperate to get information from the government in Israel, and they have become reliant on whatever they can get from social media. They have no other choice. Yes. Yeah, Steph, I think we've really been in this this just this terrible bargain over the course of the last few days, ever since October 7th, in which we simultaneously want social media to give it to us straight, right? Give me the unfiltered, raw feed from 
the, the very front lines of what is happening so that I can see for myself. But of course, that hunger, as Achia points out, creates this extraordinary opportunity for bad actors to come in and, and manipulate reality. And then simultaneously, you have, uh, you know, this, this absolute impossibility on the part of the major platforms to truly get a handle on not only what is real and what is not, but, but trying to sort out post by post, does this piece of violent content serve some sort of public or, or news gathering purpose, or should it be taken down? All of which is to say, you know, the, the moment that I was most kind of t- tied up and didn't quite know what to do with it was um, right in the in the middle of last week, uh, you had Jewish schools and Jewish community centers across the world uh, telling us, and we see that they had been instructed, or at least it had been suggested by the Israeli government, that they go to the students of their schools and have them delete Instagram and TikTok off of their phones. Now, the Israeli government told us that that was not, in fact, something that they had done, but multiple schools said they had. That part was was unclear enough. Then, you're in this moment, right, where, of course, parents and teachers would want to shield children from violent content. But at the same time, the idea of taking social media away from children at a time when teenagers and young people were trying to figure out what was really happening, you know, it's just an impossible situation. We've gotten into this world with social media where it is so hard to tell the difference between what is real and what is fake. And as far as the experts I've been speaking to, you know, uh, Hamas is one of the, the, you know, is not terribly sophisticated about this stuff. Um, you know, it is, it is even, it is other actors like Hezbollah that are going to be even more sophisticated if they choose to, to begin really moving across the social media space. So it's just this incredible devil's bargain that I think we are all grappling with right at this moment here, Steph. I'm going to ask you the worst question, Jake, because it only makes it harder for you to cover this and to deal with these social media companies every day, which you have to. What have they been like to deal with over the last week? I'm guessing that you're calling them and their PR uh, desks every single day over the last week. Are they being helpful? Are they being open? Are they being more difficult than usual? Because what we need from those companies right now, once and for all, is open, honest transparency. What have they been like over the last week? You know, I will say that it is it is never a, a terribly open communications channel. This is, you know, it's an antagonistic it relationship well by its nature, as it should be. Right. That is how it's supposed to work. And and the the you know, for me, there have been official statements from the major platforms saying, you know, uh, that they are taking extra steps and they are trying to get uh, Arab and Hebrew speaking uh, operatives into position to deal with misinformation and the rest of it. You know, they they issue official statements to us wherever they can. Um, but we do not have a good sense of what's going on inside. We do not have a good sense of how they're responding to the EU's uh, increased pressure on them. We do not have a good sense of that uh, across the major media. Uh, platforms. And and that is, I think, one of the many, many difficulties we have right now in piecing together what is the appropriate response and how do we deal with the information ecosystem we're in right now, Steph. Jake Ward, Ahia Schatz, thank you both so much. I'm, I'm sorry. The reason I'm the most fired up is because it is those very platforms that don't take down the hate that say it's all about putting all the information out there, put sunlight on it and let people see what's out there. But then when you go to deal with those companies and speak to their executives on the record or ask them how they operate or how their systems work, bupkis, you get nothing. When was the last time a major CEO from any one of the major social media platforms sat down and did an on the record information, uh, excuse me, interview? 
I can't remember, but I'd sure like to sit down with any of them, given how crucially important their companies are. And on that note, I wish you all a very good, I'm going to take a deep breath, and a very safe night. From all of our colleagues across the networks of NBC News, thanks for staying up late with me. I'll see you at the end of tomorrow. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.